Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. In a way that provided nuance, that showed the complexities of life here, that elevated the voices of folks within the region as opposed to the sort of outsider coming in in explanatory journalism. Appalachian Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're a entrepreneur out there especially in eastern kentucky check them out appalachia meets world we're back another week it's will and neil what's up how was the vacation well will i know you mentioned that i was in the islands with kenny that was not the truth you lied to our come on our, come on to our peeps i wish i was with kenny let's just say the vacation with my three boys was an adventure Oh, not so much a vacation. Day one started in the ER. <laughs> Day two, we had a tornado. From there, it didn't get a whole lot better. But, you know, we were amongst family. So I'm sure the kiddos loved it. It's all that matters. Yeah, I think so. There's a haze here in Northeast Ohio. We're not yeah. supposed to be outside. I can see smoke. It's crazy. They burn stuff down up there. The wildfires in Canada coming down. Oh, it's coming down that far. Yeah, there's like un unhealthy air quality. Wow, they told you to stay inside. Yeah, they're canceling all events, outdoor events. Are you serious at this point? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, so you're telling me this is the new epidemic? (laughs) Apparently, they found a way to shut down the world. Now they're trying to keep us indoors. You uh. Preparing for the big event next week. You know it. You got your fire fireworks stocked? Uh, not all of them. Not all of them just yet. So we're getting there. I'll keep you posted. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, four days from, from now when I light the sky up. Uh, if there was a way that we could maybe film some of it and, and put it online for our listeners, we, we should probably try to do that. It's quite the show. I think you should, even for... 30 seconds. Or maybe just have it playing in the background next week. Ooh. Yeah. Record some of that. Yeah, for sure. I'll have to do that. It's going to be a show Tuesday, middle of the week. I'm a traditionalist, you know, so it's got to be on that day. Off fireworks on the first, which is Saturday, tomorrow. You got to, you got to do it on the day. So we'll, we'll take a break in the middle of the week and we'll, we'll light the sky on fire, baby. And, and I know that's kind of American news. Uh, if you live in America, but uh, do you have any Appalachian news for me? Yeah, I got a little bit since you missed next, last week. I'll I'll catch you up. Yeah, please. And, and I, I have to say, we, we really missed you last week. I feel like I haven't talked to you in forever. I know. I didn't get any calls from our listeners, but they didn't miss me. So you, you did a great job. Uh, yeah, a little bit of app news. SOAR, shaping our Appalachian region, is having – the Country Music Highway Tribute Concert. It's three shows, one go, showcasing Kentucky's Country Music Highway. For some of y'all that don't know, that's US 23 that runs through Eastern Kentucky that has produced the likes of Chris Stapleton, Ricky Skaggs, Patty Loveless, Dwight Yoakam, Winona Judd, Tyler Childers, Loretta Lynn, just to name a few. Um, So they're having a three-day concert, Saturday, July 29th, Saturday, August 12th, and Saturday, August 19th. We'll post it in the show notes. They're all free, except for Saturday, August 19th, which is an indoor show. But you can buy tickets. We'll post that. I just wanted to mention it. Also, we've had her on the show before, Elaine McMillian Sheldon. 
came out with King Cole, her, her premier documentary. She's having her world premiere at the Culture Center in Charleston, West Virginia on July 8th at 6 p.m. So if you're in the area, go check that out. Definitely check it out. Also wanted to mention, we've had Backroads of Appalachia on the show before. Bitlux, which is a Florida-based private jet charter, has partnered to sponsor Backroads of Appalachia to provide and connect the national and global motorsports enthusiasts to the events that Backroads is having, which I think is big news for Backroads. I mean, this private jet company out of Florida has agreed to connect people. It just goes to show what Backroads is doing in Central Appalachia. If you're not familiar, they're a nonprofit promoting economic development and workforce development through tourism and motorsports in Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and West Virginia. So we'll post Backroads on the show notes. We'll also post the article that talks about Bitlux being a sponsor. I just think that's pretty big news for them. Also wanted to mention the ARC just announced their Arise. We've mentioned the Arise grant before, which is brings together states. You have to have multiple states to apply, but they just put out their solicit their notice of solicitation for applications. So if you're thinking about applying, you can check their website. We'll post it in the show notes. Also wanted to mention in regards to Pride Month, Willie Carver Jr who was the Kentucky Teacher of the Year in 2022, is also an advocate for youth LGBTQ plus community, was just on GMA talking about his new book of poems that inspires LGBTQ plus community. It's called Gay Poems for Red States. Just wanted to mention that. We'll post the link for when he was on GMA representing Appalachia. One other small bit of news that I wanted to talk about. Have you seen the obituary for James Loveless? Yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> I want to talk about that for a minute since we kind of got through the app news, but this is app news that has gone global. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite the piece of a uh, longtime Pulaski County man who recently passed. Have you read the entire obituary? I did. The, the part that said he had nice shins just I lost it <laughs> when I read the part about shins. I mean, aside from, I don't know if it's a joke or what, but I didn't think it was real at first, but it's actually good writing. Whoever wrote it, which it was his son, now that we know, he's a really good writer. He actually produced some good content. I mean, it's amazing. I'm pretty sure that it's real. If our listeners haven't haven't seen it, maybe check out James Loveless from uh, Somerset, Kentucky, who God rest his soul, passed away on uh, June the 14th. Uh, his son wrote a nice piece about just who James was. Just exactly who he is. Uh, his son has been on the news talking about it because he's gotten so much attention. He speaks from the heart, if you want to put it put it that way. He talks about his dad from his perspective. It's nothing that you would think. That would be in an obituary, but it's on point. I think it's it's pretty brilliant. Yeah, he uh, told you exactly who his, who his dad was. That's for sure. From the second favorite, favorite son. Left nothing to question. We'll actually post it in the show notes as well. So you can read it. Just click on the link. If for nothing else, I'm sad that he passed away, but for entertainment purposes, you can check it out. But I wanted to mention it because today we are... Focusing on media in Appalachia with our episode, we're going to be talking to Skylar Baker Jordan of 100 Days in Appalachia, which is a it's a nonprofit news organization that started to talk about the 100 days of after President Trump got elected. And it's since grown into telling the stories of Appalachia by Appalachians for Appalachians. They put out some good, interesting content. They talk about celebrating the region, but also talking about the, the successes and the failures and to empower the communities throughout Appalachia. We'll post the website, 100 Days in Appalachia, but we wanted to focus on media in Appalachia the next couple of weeks. You know, local newspapers are closing shop here and there, especially in rural places, but 
I feel like the stories and the media has only grown in regards to digital media in regards to things like a podcast like we have. So we wanted to focus on that and see how the media has changed, how media has portrayed Appalachia historically and how they portray them now. Even our podcast is getting stories out there on a weekly basis. Yeah, I think media has certainly changed. The The platforms have changed, but the stories are still there. So I'm interested to talk to uh, to, to Skylar and hear about how they do it with the 100 Days in Appalachia. Yeah, telling the underrepresented stories of really just stories all throughout Appalachia. So without further ado, you want to get him on here? Yeah, let's do it. the episode today we have a special guest Skylar Baker Jordan he's an essayist a commentator and journalist published in both the U.S. and U.K. with areas of expertise to include British politics transatlantic comparisons the LGBTQ plus community and masculinity as a social construct his bylines include the Independent Newsweek Huffington Post UK Salon and Metro to name a few uh, most recently has become a contributing editor for community engagement for 100 Days in Appalachia and a returning graduate student at East Tennessee State University in Appalachian Studies. But maybe more importantly, he has become one of many diverse voices in Appalachia. So, Skylar, I want to thank you for being on the show. We appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. A question that we always kick it off with that we ask everyone, like most Appalachians, our family, we're big on tradition, big on history. One of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays, usually this gigantic spread of appetizers bigger than the actual meal. So, Scholar, we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Oh, there are so many. I mean... Stuffing, grandma's stuffing has sticks out as I mean it's it's more of a side dish than an appetizer, but grandma's stuffing, her cranberry sauce, anything my mamaw makes is 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 gonna be delicious. So she, is, is it cornbread stuffing or is it a different kind? She does do a cornbread stuffing, but I don't actually know what she does for her stuffing. She's, she's never she's never betrayed that or never given me that uh that recipe. I'm gonna have to ask her. He did just show me how to make cornbread, though, because I couldn't get my cornbread crispy like hers. I, I've been making it the Yankee way for most of my adult life. And finally, I told her, I was like, you, you're going to have to show me the trick here. Um, Yankee way? Does that mean adding a little sugar? It does. It does. Yeah. <laughs> Learned to do that when I was living in Chicago. It's controversial in my family when I make cornbread. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, but what my yeah, grandma's really known for, uh, if you want to talk about food, is gravy and biscuits. It's her gravy and biscuits. When we all are together, that's what we want is mamaw's gravy and biscuits. A good gravy and biscuits hard to get sometimes. So, yes. well, now that we have that question out of the way, I appreciate it. But we, you know, we wanted to talk and have you on in regards to the media landscape, kind of a broad stroke in Appalachia. But first, I think it might be important to let the listeners know just a little bit about where you grew up. Yeah. Uh, so I was born uh, in Dayton, Ohio. My father was also born in Dayton, Ohio, to my grandparents, obviously. Uh, and one was from southeastern Kentucky and one was from northeast Tennessee. And I think that is the story of most of the people I grew up around. Um, we grew up on the east side of Dayton, very Appalachian expat community. Uh, everyone had roots down home. As I got older, my grandparents moved to eastern Kentucky back to the old family home place. And I started splitting my time between Dayton and Leslie County, Kentucky until I was 15 when I moved in with my grandparents full time and ended up graduating from Leslie County High School. Uh, and, and that's really what I consider home is Leslie County. I don't most of the family has moved out of Dayton at this point, um, but Leslie County still, I mean, we've moved out of Leslie County too, but there's always the call back to the holler the way there's not a call back to, to the plat. So, <laughs> Yeah. Getting into just kind of the media landscape, you know, when we talk about media, we talk about stories, writing, publishing, documenting the world really, but as 
local news has had its challenges recently as newspapers have shuttered in local rural areas. There's still so much media out there. So there's layers and layers of voices, images, emotion, opinions, chatter, constant dialogue, constant disagreement. We hear it all the time, and especially in Appalachia when the media swoops in, but never really deeply engages in the injustices or damage that may have been caused in regards to Appalachia. It's a very complex region, but just from a long historical, maybe broad stroke, can you speak from your perspective how Appalachia has kind of been portrayed in the media and why to that extent? Yeah, Appalachia has been portrayed as isolated, backwards, primitive, ignorant for most of its history. And when I'm saying its history, I'm talking about the construct of this region. Uh, So going back to really the 1780s when we were the wilderness, you know, back even before then. So we'll go back to the 18th century, we'll say, you know, when you had folks coming down the Great Wagon Road from Pennsylvania on into the back country of North Carolina and Virginia, it was considered rugged and, and, and isolated. And, and that's, you know, primitive. And that has never really left us. You can trace it all the way through the 19th century with the advent of local color writers like Mary Murphy uh, and uh, William Goodall Frost wrote in 1899 that we were uh, America's contemporary ancestors. We were so primitive. We were living like the folks lived before the revolution. And you can trace a, a through line from 1899 all the way up through 2016 when J.D. Vance published Hillbilly Elegy really recycling many of the same claims that writers had been making about Appalachia for, at that point, well over a century, which is that we are primitive, we are backwards, we are uneducated, not of the modern era, we are ill-adapt to life in a civilized modern society, and that has been the way that we have been caricatured for the length of American history, and it hasn't changed at all. I mean, we are, as we have always been portrayed, which is very negatively. Like I said, you know, it's a very complex region in in many ways, but we have this deep, maybe well-earned distrust of the mainstream media, I feel like, in Appalachia. I, I read a quote once that the country needs Appalachia as an elsewhere for its problems, but really, Appalachians' problems are national problems. Do you see that in, in, in media today? I see that in American history. Um, I, I think that one of the things I, I, I always stress is that this is not a, a, a present day problem. This has been a problem Appalachia has faced throughout its history. We are, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. We are a sin eater for America. We are where white America in particular can project all of its prejudices and bigotries and the the bad parts of its psyche onto this region and onto the ignorant white people there so that they can cleanse themselves or disavow themselves of the uglier parts of their nature. You know, we act like racism, homophobia, xenophobia, misogyny, that these are, you know, the Trump presidency, that that it, it is all the fault of those white people, not us good white people in the suburbs of Chicago or in midtown Manhattan. It's them. It's the yokes. It's the hillbillies. It's the rednecks. And of course, that's not true. Chicago is the most segregated city in America. (laughs) You know, the comedian Dulce Sloan, uh, I think that's her name, Dulce Sloan. uh, She's on uh, The Daily Show. She has a bit And it's the best bit I've ever heard, you know, when she's talking about New Yorkers, talking about how the South is so racist, you know, she's like, oh, show me the part of America that isn't racist. She's like, do you mean the South that starts at Canada and ends at Mexico? And that really is it. The rest of the country wants to project its own sins onto us without acknowledging that the same homophobia that I experienced in the early 2000s in an Appalachian high school. I might well have experienced in New Hampshire or on the great, in the Great Plains or in the Inland Empire of California. You know, that was the era we were in as a country. 
and Appalachia is not separate from America. It's part of America. So everything bad that happens in America happens in Appalachia, but everything good about America is also present here. And that's the part that people don't always realize. Yeah, very well said. Kind of to that point, but you mentioned uh, Hillbilly Elegy, you mentioned the elections. I feel like since that book came out, one good thing that did come from that book was that a lot more voices have become come to the surface, uh, diverse voices throughout the region, maybe not because of that book, but recently or, or over the last few years. So I wanted to talk about 100 Days in Appalachia. Can you explain just to our listeners what 100 Days in Appalachia is, why it got started, and kind of the significance of its platform? 100 Days in Appalachia began in 2017 with an original remit to document the first 100 days of the Trump administration and to see if the administration and Donald Trump were keeping the promises that were made to the region. What the folks who founded it and and were there from the beginning, so Dana Coaster, who's the editor-in-chief, Ashton Mara, what they discovered pretty quickly, I think, is that there was a need for an outlet that covered the region in a way that provided nuance, that showed the complexities of life here, that elevated the voices of folks within the region as opposed to the sort of outsider coming in and explanatory journalism. I mean, and they they realized that they were in a position to offer that and they've done it. I would say flawlessly. I'm sure they are too humble to say flawlessly, but I I mean, it's really remarkable what they built. And all the credit goes to the team that was there originally. You know, I didn't come on until 2021, I think it was. So I've only been there for a couple of years now. But, you know, by the time I joined, 100 Days already had this incredible reputation that they had built by doing the kind of journalism that is very rarely done in Appalachia which is the kind of journalism that I think can only be done by folks who are invested in this region. So not people who come in from the outside, stay for a week or two, and then go back to New York or DC, but the kind of reporting that can only be done by people who who are here for the long haul and have intricate knowledge of the region and the complexities of, of life here and the ins and outs and, and the, the networks and the resources to be able to do that kind of reporting. So I'm, I'm thrilled and proud to be a part of this team. They blow me away with the work that they do and with their commitment to the region. We are a nonprofit newsroom run by and for Appalachians. And I don't think another newsroom like us exists. By and for Appalachians. I like that. I like that uh, tagline there. Uh, what, what's your specific focus at 100 Days? What you know? What do you write on? I know you send out, I don't think it's a newsletter, but it's a weekly update email. Uh, but what's your main focus at 100 Days? We call it a newsletter because you have to subscribe to get it uh, and it goes into your inbox. So it's very much in this sort of newsletter vein. And then, of course, I do the weekly news roundup, which is, you know, just four or five stories from across Appalachia outside of 100 days. So, you know, I'm looking at local newsrooms and things like that that are reporting on interesting things that are that are happening in the region or things I think folks should know about. But my my job at 100 Days is essentially to oversee those newsletter products. So what I do is every Tuesday, I have a newsletter come out that I write uh, in, in, in my own voice on a topic that I find interesting. I mean, I have a lot of leeway. No one tells me what to write. <laughs> that can make it very difficult at times because, you know, there are 52 weeks in a year. And while we all love Appalachia, you do sometimes run out of things to say. I mean, I remember like one time last year, I, I didn't know what the hell to write about for a given week. So I drove up I-75 to Jellicoe, Tennessee and just looked around, took some photos and wrote like, this is what I found in Jellicoe. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I'm like 52 essays on Appalachia a year. Not all of them are going to be hits, but I do try and explain what it is to love this region as somebody who this region doesn't always love back. You know, I'm, I'm gay. I'm a socialist. <laughs> I, 
uh, I, I don't fit the the sort of stereotypical mold of Appalachia, and indeed, it can be very, very difficult to live here sometimes as me. But I do love this place, and I I find my job is to try and elevate other voices that love this place but have complex relationships with it, as well as try to offer people who maybe don't always see themselves included in the fabric of the region, someone that they can look at and or see and say, okay, if if he belongs here, I belong here. And we really get to do that with the other side of what I do, which is our Thursday newsletter, which is our creators and innovators series. And each month, a new person from somewhere in the region who's doing something cool, you know, so an artist or an activist or an entrepreneur, Uh, takes over the newsletter and they write about what they do. And sometimes they write beautiful, thoughtful, provocative essays about life in Appalachia. And sometimes they just tell you about some local musicians they think are really cool. And both of those things I think offer value because they're showing Appalachia in all of its diversity. And they're showing Appalachia as a place of deep thought, but also a place of great joy. And I absolutely love that. And I love getting to know the people who are doing some really cool work just across the region from Mississippi on up to New York. Yeah, yeah, I I, I get that as well. And I, I appreciate hearing different voices throughout the region. And I read a quote, you, and you, you kind of alluded to this. I read a quote from the new Kentucky poet laureate, Silas House. He said, you love your home state, but it doesn't always love you back. And, and you just mentioned that in regards to your life's journey, but a more, I guess, media-driven journey. What led you into journalism in the first place? Was it a chance to, for you to express your own voice, or was it to write about uh, certain subjects, topics that you felt needed to be written about? Uh, what, what, what's been your journey into a media, into journalism? I got into journalism really because I, to, to borrow a British phrase, I'm a gobshite. Like I have a lot of opinions and I will tell you. And I, I discovered being a newspaper columnist was a great way to get paid to tell people your opinions. You know, I, I didn't plan on being a journalist though. I honestly didn't know what I was gonna be when I, my undergraduate degrees in history. And I really thought, I mean, for a long time, I wanted to be a history professor until my advisor sat me down uh, and said, you know, history professors die in office. You'll never get a job, find something else. How about law school? And I said, I don't wanna be a lawyer. I hate lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't know what I was gonna do. I took a creative writing class on a whim really enjoyed that. Really, really enjoyed that. Thought I might be a novelist, but found that my skill set really was in in journalism. And so I started writing for Rise Over Run magazine, which was a student-run magazine at Western Kentucky University in the 2000s. And uh, that was my first gig. And I just loved it. I loved having a platform to share my thoughts. And I found that I was pretty good at articulating those thoughts with the written word, which probably shouldn't be surprising considering I was a history major. And if you've ever taken a, a history class, you know the sheer amount of writing <laughs> that is required of that. <laughs> if I hadn't had that training, I wouldn't be able to, to, to write uh, as quickly and as nimbly as I do. So that was sort of my entrance into it. It was, it was quite by accident. And it was because I was told to find something else to do with my life. In some of your writings, you, you write about the conflict that you have with Appalachia, with where you call home. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? But as you write, does your opinion change over time as you write, even if in reference to Appalachia as a region? My opinion doesn't change. How I articulate that opinion might change. You know, there are certainly times, particularly over the last six months, we'll say, as we've seen a lot of really draconian anti-LGBTQ, and, and frankly, I think anti-free speech, anti-First Amendment bills uh, passed in the South, uh, in particular Tennessee, Kentucky, 
are the two states I'm most familiar with, but we've seen them in West Virginia. We've seen them in uh, elsewhere um, as well. You know, I have to remind myself that as much as I might hate what is being done there, that there's still a lot that I love about this place. And so, you know, yeah, I'll go back and I'll edit something and tone down the rhetoric or add something in to, to make clear that like, I'm not trying to insult the entire region or imply that everyone here thinks the way that our politicians think. And I think that's part of what 100 Days does is we correct the narrative that there is a singular Appalachian opinion about anything. There's not. And we are, uh, we have always contained multitudes. We have a diverse uh, political system as the rest of America. I mean, nowhere in America is red or blue. Everywhere in America is purple to some degree. And I, I remind myself that even the folks who vote for Republicans here in Appalachia don't necessarily agree with everything that those Republicans are doing in Nashville or Frankfurt or Charleston or wherever they are. And frankly, a lot of these culture war issues, which have pissed me off over the last six months, are not issues that play out on the ground. You don't experience, I don't experience homophobia in Johnson City, or I haven't. I'm not going to say there's no homophobia in Johnson City. That would be ludicrous. But I haven't experienced any. No one's been rude to me or mean to me or treated me poorly because I'm gay or because I get mistaken for a woman a lot because I'm fat. And so I have boobs. <laughs> You know, nobody has treated me badly. I mean, we are still getting along very well as a country on a day-to-day -day basis. So, you know, I mean, I try to remind myself of that. And nowhere is perfect. I had things that I didn't like about Chicago when I lived there. And that's about as blue as you can get. Yeah. I, my opinion doesn't change, but I do try and edit the, the worst impulses out of <laughs> You mentioned an interesting topic, you know, it is Pride Month, but you mentioned that, um, well, well, actually, you mentioned the, the anti-LGBTQ uh, laws, but I saw that 75 anti-LGBTQ law bills have been signed into law in 2023. Hundreds more have been introduced, which can have, obviously, as you well know, a disturbing impact on the community, especially youth who are just forming their identities. I read an article on normativity. Uh, I feel it's uh, significant to celebrate pride because as, as a white, straight male, my existence is the norm. It, it, it's acceptable. Someone who is seen as different, um, it's, it's much harder. I don't have to fight to be seen. I don't have to fight to be accepted. I feel like pride is a time that we can celebrate diversity, push for equity and stand in sol solidarity. I, I read a quote from, is actually from Martin Luther King um, in, the, in the letters to Birmingham, said, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of bad people, but for the appalling silence of good people. Maybe my question is during uh, Pride Month, what can we as a region, what can I do to celebrate diversity, uh, to become more welcoming? Um, I think the worst thing we can do is nothing. Maybe that's a convoluted question, but how can we in a region become more welcoming? It's not something that can happen overnight. And that is not the answer that most people want to hear, but it is going to take a long time to undo some of the damage that has been done. One thing that we can all do is speak up. I'm not a big fan of individual action because I think that individuals can only do so much. So I would encourage people to get involved. Find, you know, your local NAACP chapter and join, join that. Find, if you are a parent with a, an LGBT child, find a PFLAG chapter, join that. There is power in numbers. And we have seen that throughout American history. Let's zero in on Appalachia. I mean, look at the labor movement of the 20th century from the West Virginia mine wars on up through Bloody Harlan, on up through, you know, on up through, on up through. I mean, to the teachers unions in West Virginia, just what, six years ago, maybe seven years ago, I can't remember when, but I mean, within the last decade, They've had some 
monumental successes because they came together. You know, it's it's trite and it's cliche to say, but it's true that the people united can never be defeated. This is still a democracy. This is still our country. This is our region. We have every right to speak up. And our singular voice may not be heard, but if you look at what the students in Nashville did after the Covenant school shooting, going to the Capitol and the numbers that they went, they made a statement. They changed Governor Lee's mind. Governor Lee is supporting red flag laws where before he didn't. It sounds small, but it's not. And the children taught us that. So I think that that's what we need to do. Appalachia as a region is not a particularly welcoming place. And that's not necessarily has anything to do with your skin color or your sexual orientation or anything. Appalachians tend to be a little bit, I think, skeptical of outsiders in general. Yeah. <laughs> but so we could probably work on that. <laughs> you know, some of that, some of that is understandable. We've been burned by outsiders quite a bit in, in our history. But as far as being welcoming to our own, we can start working on that by working at a really grassroots level. And I see that change happening across the region. And I'm very optimistic about the future of Appalachia because of that. I see people who are really coming together. And I see our communities coming together in times of tragedy that reminds me that whether we are Republicans or Democrats, black or white, gay or straight, whatever, that we are Appalachians and we are Americans. And I'm thinking particularly of the response I saw to the flooding in Eastern Kentucky last year and the, the amazing people I met who were doing work, who didn't care if you were a Republican or a Democrat, they just wanted to help. And I take heart in that. I think that we are a resilient people and that we are a people who, despite our differences, we can still come together. And so I, I think it's good. One thing I will say about Pride Month, though, is please don't do this just during Pride Month. Please don't do this just during Black History Month. This needs to be a year-round thing. Yeah. And Pride Month can be a celebration. Juneteenth can be a celebration. But those, the spirit of those events needs to be carried throughout the calendar year. And I would love to see at some point us declare sort of a patriotic American month in June, running from Memorial Day to the 4th of July, those bookends with Juneteenth and Pride celebrating the diversity and the, the incredible steps that we have made towards becoming a more perfect union, starting with the sacrifices of our men and women in uniform and ending with the celebration of American democracy and this wonderful republic that we all call home. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, that. Even that it, you know, shouldn't be a month, I think in my normativity in the article I read, it kind of alluded to that. It should just be a normal and, and celebrated throughout throughout the year. Yeah. Uh, and, and and I think, you know, when we say celebrate, I'm not telling you to put a rainbow flag out, to, <laughs> you know, glass disco or whatever. Just be accepting, you know, and 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 make it normal to, to feature LGBTQ voices alongside all the other voices that people feature. And that's that's really what we have to do. And that's one thing that at 100 Days we strive to do is to, to make it normal for you to think of Appalachia as a diverse place and not just a place where, you know, the Scots-Irish live, which is what I think a lot of people presume, but it's never been homogenous. Never, ever, ever. Obviously, this episode's focused on media and the importance of diversity in media, I wanted to ask you, you, you know, I mentioned in your bio, you currently have gone back to graduate school to uh, focus on Appalachian studies. What led you to return to school and really focus on the region? Why is it, why it's a, is it important to you? Because I felt like I did not have the authority to report on or speak on behalf of this region, to be completely honest. I graduated high school in 2004, moved to Bowling Green, which is one, Bowling Green's in Warren County, which is one county shy of the Appalachian Regional Commission's definition of Appalachia. That said, I would not consider Bowling Green Appalachian at all. There is nowhere around Bowling Green that I would consider Appalachian. So the ARC's definition is imperfect. But that said, I lived out of the region from that time. So that was 2000 until I moved back in 2019. So for 15 years, I wasn't here. 
And then suddenly about 2019, 2020, because I moved back to the region and suddenly when people, you know, you have to do your little author bio and editors are like, oh, where do you live? And I'm like, I live in Tennessee. They're like, oh, so suddenly I was being asked to write more and more about Appalachia in particular. I didn't know anything about Appalachia. I really didn't think I did. I was like, I haven't, I mean, I just moved back. I don't know what is going on here. I'd been in Chicago and down on the coast in North Carolina. And both of those areas have very different needs and very different realities. And so when I realized that my career was transitioning into covering Appalachia and writing about Appalachia more and more, I thought that if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right because I owe it to the people of the region to get it right. And I did not feel that I knew enough. I found a master's program in Appalachian studies. I emailed Lee Bidgood, who is the graduate advisor. And I explained, I was like, look, I'm a journalist. I'm covering Appalachia, but I'm from the region, but I don't feel like I know what I'm doing. So we talked and, and the next thing you know, I'm moving to Johnson City and uh, and and loving it. It's a fantastic program. Um, it's a fantastic department. And it is the most nurturing and supportive environment that I think I've ever found myself in. That's kind of true of Appalachian studies in general um, and Appalachian media. And I think Appalachia in general, we, we root for each other. We want each other to do good. It's been pure joy. From a journalistic perspective, I appreciate, I appreciate that answer. I really do. And Neil, Neil would be happy that you gave a shout out to ETSU as the alma mater of Kenny Chesney. Which yeah, yeah. I was in the audience when we uh, they gave him an honorary doctorate last year. Oh, really? Yeah. So at the 40th no. anniversary of the Bluegrass Old Time and Roots music. Dr. Chesney. We can call him doctor now. I didn't know. Dr. Chesney. Yes, he is. He's got an honorary doctorate. So. Scholar, I have a couple of, uh, since we're talking about media, a couple of quick questions for you. Easy answer, short answer, if you're open to that. Yeah, absolutely. As a journalist, as a writer, what's your favorite book? Oh, there are two of them. One is Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Wall. I just, there's something about that book, the way it deals with like homosexuality under the surface, the British aristocracy, religion. It's just a brilliantly written book. And then the other is The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, which came out a decade ago, maybe a little bit more. And it is a retelling of the Iliad, focusing on the love story between Achilles and Patroclus. And it is hands down the most beautiful and poetic book I have ever read. And I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe they are making it into a mini series or something I read. So I've, I've been on the lookout for that, but those are the two books that, that come to mind. Oh, and then of course the Bible. My grandmother would kill me <laughs> if I didn't say the Bible. So the you Bible. Get you get deep there, <laughs> Scholar, with those two choices. Do you have a favorite Appalachian book? A favorite Apple? Oh, yeah, I should probably, oh gosh. Um, Okay, so Bill Turner's Harlan Renaissance is a, a favorite of mine, as is Nima Avashia's memoir, um, Another Appalachia, which is about growing her growing up as a the daughter of Indian immigrants and a lesbian in West Virginia. My favorite Appalachian novel. So I love The Little Shepherd of Kingdom Come by John Fox Jr. It is about an Appalachian a, a guy from Eastern Kentucky who ends up in the bluegrass uh, and gets taken in by a wealthy benefactor and ends up serving in the union in the civil war. And it's just sort of this very, very like a, a beautiful, easy to read uh, story about an Appalachian boy who isn't dumb, who is gallant and noble and all of the things that Appalachian boys are not usually portrayed at. And it's it's a wonderful book. It came out, I think, in 1901. Uh, and then another favorite of mine would be Harriet Arnau's uh, The Dollmaker, which is about um, a woman from Eastern Kentucky, again, who during World War II joins her husband in Detroit and about the difficulties that she has adjusting as an Appalachian out migrant in 
uh, in a northern city. And to me, I mean, it just it resonated with the life that I have led as the descendant of out migrants. I recognized a lot of the same themes and the same conflicts. And it's it's beautifully written. It's the single best book I've ever read about the out migrant experience. I mean, it, it just it stands up 70 years after she's written it. Very cool picks. Do you have a favorite author? I don't know that I have a favorite author. Um, maybe Toni Morrison. May I think I think Toni Morrison would have to be my pick. There's something she she knows how to tell a story. Talk about media, but we're talking about Appalachia. Do you have a favorite place in Appalachia? A favorite thing to do? Oh, that's a good one. I'm actually a big fan of the Museum of Appalachia in Norris, Tennessee. I just, I could, I, and I have spent many days just wandering around. Um, I have seen every inch of that museum more times than I can count, but it's just a wonderful, wonderful place to be. Um, you know, you're surrounded by this, your, your history and your heritage, and it's a beautiful campus. You know, they have just, it's a great place to just wander around and you can see the peacocks and the the goats and all of that you have a good meal and i i really love that spot and then just up the road from there is Bryceville, tennessee which is and, and you get into rocky top and that's where the coal creek war happened which was a uh really the alex haley once called it the first uh intersection of the labor movement and the civil rights movement because you had coal miners rising up against convict labor. And of course, most of the convicts were black because it was Jim Crow and sort of neo-slavery. And there's a beautiful church there that the Welsh immigrants built who many of them participated in the Coal Creek War. Um, there's the memorial to uh, the miners who were killed in the Freighterville mine disaster. And it's, it's, it's a great place. Um, it's right off the interstate. So if folks are ever driving down I-75 and they want to stop and see some history, that's where they should stop. Cornbread or biscuits? <laughs> Don't make me choose. I'm going to say biscuits. It's always, okay. yeah, always biscuits. Yeah, okay. cornbread is 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 second tier. Not a wrong answer there, especially if you put sugar in cornbread. Then I, I can see you going with biscuits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My grandmother's going to hear this and she's going to she's going to read me for filth. I'm going to get a <laughs> All right. better than that. What's the first thing you think of when I say the word Appalachia? family. Good answer. Um, we, yeah, yeah, we've had that answer before. And to that point, we ground our podcast on place and perspective. Place is really important for Neil and I. It's really important for Appalachia. It's kind of like a character in and to itself. Uh, so we wanted to ask you just where do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? That's an interesting question. Bowling Green is home, which isn't Appalachia. It's close enough that I feel okay saying that. But it's the only place that I consistently go back to. My family's left Leslie County. Leslie County is very far off the beaten path. You have to mean to go there to end up there. But Bowling Green is the place I always go back to. And um, so Bowling Green is what I consider home. More generally, the entire Commonwealth of Kentucky is home. It will always be home. There is not a corner of that state that I have not spent quite a bit of time in. And from the Mississippi to the Appalachians, you can't get any better than Kentucky. They say that West Virginia is almost heaven. Kentucky is heaven. Yeah, there you go. That's a perfect, perfect ending to the episode because I'm a little biased myself about Kentucky. Skylar, I wanted to thank you so much for being on the episode. Thank you for sharing with us. Thank you for the work that you're doing at 100 Days, the work that 100 Days is doing in general to, to allow more voices in Appalachia to be heard. So thank you. Well, thank you. You have a great day. All right, Will. Great to hear from Skylar. Lots of great, great stuff there. Good to hear about, you know, what 100 Days is doing, what he does with 100 Days, what he focuses on. You know, like he mentioned, Appalachia is a complex region, one that he has always called home. He's now back home, and it's kind of like we've always said, there's magic in those mountains. They just draw you back. Absolutely. I know uh, he uh, is excited to be back home, and we're still striving to get you back home, but 
uh, I know you can relate to, to some of his feelings over the years. Speaking of, I wanted to highlight a, a at biz of the week, if you if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. What you got? So speaking of the mountains, there's an app biz in Western North Carolina it's called Made by Mountains. It's actually an organization, but its sole purpose is to build vibrant outdoor communities, grow outdoor businesses, and amplify the outdoor culture in Western North Carolina and really in the whole entire Appalachian mountain range. So it's called Made by Mountains. Um, you can check out their website. It's M-A-D-E-X-M-T-N-S.com. We'll definitely post it in the show notes. I wanted to mention because they have several stories on there of businesses throughout Western North Carolina. They highlight those stories. They talk about the businesses. So you can check it out. Check out some specific businesses in Western North Carolina. They also just came out with the Outdoor Equity Fund, which has established 125000 to empower community-led initiatives that address identified barriers to outdoor recreation access and opportunity. I think that's important for the mountain outdoor community for that region, for Western North Carolina. So I just wanted to mention them during this month, during this episode. It's made by mountains in Western North Carolina. It's a great part of Appalachia, the mountains over in Western North Carolina. Definitely check out that website and check out some of the stuff they got going on. Yep. I guess, Neil, since we have wrapped up this episode with our first installment of Media in Appalachia with Scholar, we want to thank him again for his time. Thank you for being on the show. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scholar. And uh, look forward to hearing more from, from you in the coming days. And look forward to hearing from you, Neil, to, to give us an update on what happened on July the 4th. Yes, sir. A lot of skies on fire in a few days. All right. We'll, we'll hear an update next week, maybe a little footage as well. So I guess without further ado, till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long. Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs. Now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains again.